morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you all today. Bacha Ungar Sargon is back with us uh, remotely. Where are you in the world, Bacha? <laughs> I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> ah, joining us bright and early. We so appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks All so right. much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, we're happy to have you. Let's get right into it. Coming up, we'll be joined by News Nation's Brian Enton to discuss Tuesday's upcoming debate between the Pennsylvania Senate candidates, John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Plus, later in the show, we'll get into some new drama surrounding Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, a favorite subject of ours. But first, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted unanimously on Friday to add the COVID-19 vaccine to the agency's recommended immunization schedules for both adults and children, including toddlers as young as six months old. Now, the CDC does not have to follow the panel's recommendation, though it is widely expected to do so. If the agency endorses the updated guidance, then the new list would be published as soon as this upcoming February. Now, contrary to popular belief, the recommendation does not mean schools must require the COVID vaccine for enrollment. That's still up to states and local jurisdictions. The panel's decision comes just days after Pfizer announced that adult doses of their COVID mRNA vaccine will cost up to $130 a pop once the U.S. government stops subsidizing them. A Pfizer executive defended the price increase to the Hill last week, noting that the price tag was, quote, well below the thresholds for what would be considered a, quote, highly effective vaccine. Mm. Where are you on this news, Robbie? Mm. Well, on, on the earlier <laughs> thing I brought up, it, so it is true that this is not, and I saw a lot of bad reporting on this saying that, well, now suddenly this means for certain that these vaccines will be required of school children. It doesn't quite mean that. However, it, it is the case that many uh, municipalities will simply, just as we've seen with everything else the CDC quote-unquote recommends, well, it's just automatic. They'll, they do whatever the CDC recommends. Uh, now, some states, you know, with red, red jurisdictions might not do that. I saw, for instance, Tennessee, uh, the government of Tennessee saying, well, we're not adding COVID to the child immunization schedule, regardless of what the CDC says, which I think makes sense. But there will be certain municipalities that will just go along with this because that's what the CDC said. And I think that's very concerning uh, for a number of reasons. One being we know, you know, from just just from seeing in Washington, D.C., for instance, when uh, where I live, when uh, schools tried to require vaccination on even very young kids, well, they, they found out that uh, black and brown kids had much lower vaccination rates and then they were going to just be missing school. So they, they've delayed that. They haven't decided not to do that entirely. They've just delayed it. But that same thing could repeat itself throughout the country if if this if, if this if, if it goes this way and uh, and I just don't see and, and you know then we can go go into you know the debate over whether this is whether vaccinating against COVID is even necessary for young children whether it's enough of a benefit especially for kids who are otherwise healthy and have already had COVID which is like 80 percent of all children estimated um, it just it seems like much more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, I think to a lot of people, and increasingly not just Republicans, not just conservatives, and not just independents, but Democratic parents, um, this looks like part of a trend in which schools and education and government recommendations for children and what will be allowed for children um, is is less about 
providing safety for children, education for children, things that will protect and promote them and help them become happy, healthy citizens of a nation and more like attempts to inculcate them into a very specific kind of regime and ideology, um, you know, that is very much based on, you know, what, what's called on Twitter, the current mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that is really a shame because what you, especially when it comes to children, you want to have some kind of standard that everybody can agree on, but increasingly that standard that many people, perhaps most parents agree on, is not the one that's reflected by the Democratic Party, the Biden administration, and the institutions like the CDC. Uh, Vinay Prasad wrote a really good piece on this for uh, Barry Weiss's Substack, uh, pointing out a number of issues he had with this, one of them being he's worried this will erode confidence in the vaccines that are already on the immunization schedule, uh, you know, measles, mumps, et cetera, vaccines that do satisfy a public health rationale because they prevent outbreaks of those diseases. You know, that's the we have to re- recall that that's the argument for requiring people to get it is really not even for your own good, but for the public benefit. You know, we we say that we will override, you know, your freedom of choice in this in these cases because, you know, you could give it to other people. And, and, and if, if we if you have to get this vaccine, if you're going to participate in public life, you're going to be in a public school, et cetera, that's to protect the people around you. That's not really an argument one can make with the COVID vaccines anymore, because we all know it, you know, maybe it has some effect reducing cases, but it's obviously so many people, we don't even call them breakthrough cases anymore because you can easily get and transmit it even if you've been vaccinated. And then to that point on the, the cost increase, now I don't, I, I assume you know, some insurances will cover that for some people. Of course, not everybody has insurance, so that will. And then, you know, it's sometimes it can be difficult to figure out well what insurance covers, and you get stuck with a bill anyway because our you know healthcare coverage system is so screwed up in this country. So you know, then you're gonna if you're in some sense additionally saddling uh, low poor people, low income people with that cost, and you're saying their children have to get this vaccine to go to kindergarten. You're gonna have more young people dropping out of the education system, which is a huge problem that's actually, and we'll talk more about that in my radar, but I, I could just see that problem getting worse and worse. And for what? And again, not for, for, a, for a very disputable, a disputed, limited health benefit to, to some kids that many of our peer countries don't even recommend. Yeah, I have to say, I don't agree that it's going to impact the way people treat other vaccinations because... Precisely what you said, I think most people understand there is a difference between this vaccine Mm -hmm. and the other ones that they can see with their own eyes and that the median American has arrived at the correct point of view, which is that there is a lot of scientific evidence for the measles vaccine and a lot less that this is going to be at least um, something that is necessary for children to protect themselves. And I think that um, that separation between where the average American is independent of party and where, you know, the COVID regime has ended up, it's not not just the COVID regime, it's other things as well. There was a great clip yesterday um, circulating on Twitter about a panel, I believe it was on MSNBC, where um, the host had a, a, a Republican parent, a Democratic parent, and an independent parent, and was asking them about things like um, the teaching of sexuality in school, wokeness in school, what their top priorities are, expecting there to be a wide spectrum. There was a black Democratic mom, um, a, a white man, and then I, I, I believe a, um, a Latina um, who was the independent. 
And Robbie, they all agreed. The, the, the Republicans started out by talking about wokeness and, and, and teaching kids about sex in school and how problematic that was. The black mom agreed. The independent mom agreed. It was just so funny. On each issue, there was so little that separated them, and yet such a gulf separating them from obviously what the host thinks and also her expectations of it and what the Democratic Party is, is talking like these days. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, that tells you everything you need to know right there. <laughs> All right, well, we'll continue uh, this discussion uh, more from me on, uh, on, on COVID vaccines and education in this country on My Radar coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, last week, CNN's Jake Tapper asked a provocative question. Let's watch. I have to say, I'm surprised that there hasn't been a national conversation about the damage done to kids because of these school closures and the virtual learning and everything. Because, I mean, I'm not saying it, there should be a national do-over, but we can't just pretend that fifth graders who are now seventh graders, that that didn't happen. You know, like, I feel like there should be, and not, not with a blame game, look, it happened People did it. It was criticized, the school closures, the virtual learning, et cetera. But here we are. Um, there needs to be yeah, like, a, I mean, like a bipartisan movement, you know? To repeat, Tapper's question was this. I'm surprised that there hasn't been a national conversation about the damage done to kids because of these school closures. Well, the Associated Press asked a similar question in a recent article that considered the regrets of some parents, health officials, and politicians who had all previously supported closing schools due to COVID-19. One profiled parent, a woman named Vivian, said she was in favor of keeping schools closed, but then her school-aged daughter became depressed and started failing all of her virtual classes. It didn't work at all, says Vivian. Knowing what I know now, I would say they should have put them in school. A Chicago parent, Marla, also thought schools needed to be shut down to protect the community and expected virtual learning would work okay. Her own teenager quickly became unmotivated and stopped doing his assignments until he could go back to actual classes. These comments echo the sentiments of Leanna Wen, a professor of public health and national commentator whose COVID views were once so pro-lockdown, she flirted with suggesting the unvaccinated should be forced to remain in their homes. But after she saw firsthand how school shutdowns had affected her own young kids, she changed her tune, advocating a broad return to normal in the winter and spring of 2022. That earned her charges of ableism from former progressive allies. But the damage to kids, not from the virus itself, but from our response to the virus, is not merely anecdotal. We can see it in the data. According to a study by Emily Oster of Brown University, pandemic-era schooling was associated with a 12.8% decrease in math scores for kids in grades 3 through 8, and a 6.8% decline in reading scores. Quote, the declines were larger in districts that had less in-person schooling and in districts with more black students, writes Oster. These results also may provide a note of caution when considering school closures in the future. You think? But I want to point something out. Oster was able to make those comparisons specifically because it's not true that all schools shut down for the pandemic. This may come as a surprise to media progressives who dutifully follow every dictate coming from the White House and the CDC. But red states simply didn't follow nearly the same path as their liberal counterparts. 
Here's a map of the 50 states showing the percentage of students who deal with virtual, who dealt with virtual learning for the 2020 to 2021 school year. The pinker the color, the more in-person schooling, the, the darker red pink. So you can see from this map, significant variation. California kids spending 71% of the year in virtual school, while Florida students, for instance, spent only 3% of the year in virtual school. There's also tremendous variation within schools. Indeed, there are many states where public schools were significantly shut down while their counterparts in the private sector were not. Many private and religious schools knew that the best way to serve their communities, to serve children and their families, was to reopen and was to stay open. But public schools had a powerful advocacy group, teachers unions, that pressured politicians to keep schools closed long past the point at which any logical argument could be mustered for doing so. Indeed, public schools remain the most locked down sector of our society. In the nation's capital, where I live, public schools were closed even as indoor restaurants were open for business. So let's return to Jake Tapper's question. I'm surprised that there hasn't been a national conversation about the damage done to kids because of these school closures. Well, actually, there has been a national conversation. It was taking place all along. It just took place largely outside the mainstream media, apparently without the mainstream media's permission or awareness. And in the course of that conversation, many families, their schools, and their political representatives decided that the cost of closing down schools definitely would be too great, so they didn't do it. And there's actually, so I wrote this uh, Radar Bacha just like, on Saturday, and then new data came out yesterday um, that it confirms, you know, just offers more data to confirm what we're talking about. Uh, uh, some of it also from Professor Emily Oster, who's a really great resource on this. Um, the new, uh, so from the NAEP, that's the National Association of National Assessment of Educational Progress, and according to this data, yeah, more states with more in-person schooling, they staved off uh, math loss considerably better than states where there was virtual learning. And also, it reveals that Catholic schools did not suffer learning losses the way public schools did because they a lot of them were open uh, pretty dramatically I, I have uh, I have nieces and nephews uh, in Catholic school in Michigan and ex except for the initial shutdown you know in uh, in the what was in the spring in Mar you know March April of 2020 other than that they were they were in school basically the entire time they went back um, in the in the fall, whereas you know, a lot of others did not. Um, and that, that was true of schools in Virginia. Many Catholic schools, K through 12, were open. Um, and it's, 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 it was, so there was a different way to do it. So it's fascinating to see people in the media. And I, I like Jake Tapper. I think he is one of the few voices in the mainstream media who, who actually does have some awareness of what people outside his bubble think and discuss and are saying. But broadly speaking, the mainstream media is now acting like Wow, I think they're admitting that this was a mistake. And they're like, wow, if only someone had thought that this was going to be a mistake. <laughs> like, so many people said that all the way along and, in fact, made other choices months earlier than they did. Right. It was funny when Jake Tapper was like, there should be a bipartisan commission. It's like, no, no. Only one side did this, so only one side needs to investigate this, right? I do think it's it's there's an irony to the fact that in the South, 
black kids, kids of color, ended up doing better in school and and sustaining less of a, an increasing gap between them and their white counterparts than all of the places where progressives claim to care so much about minority communities, mm-hmm. right? I mean, at what point do we start to say, no, you did this. You have lost the right to say we care about those children because you forced them to stay home where they were getting abused more, where they didn't have enough to eat, where they were learning nothing while your kids were in private school, right? I mean, at what point do we say we're, we're you know, th- that this has been a failure, this approach, not just, you know, and it's not just COVID. COVID is one of many, right? The whole equity approach to saying, instead mm-hmm. of talking about the fact that we're not teaching these children to read and we're not teaching them to do math, we're gonna t- take away AP classes so that that gap between them and our kids is less mm-hmm. apparent, right? You know, the hiding of the gap rather than talking about it to try to resolve it. Um, I think this is just one more example of that. And of course, all the related things that you know that get taken away when you have virtual schooling or no schooling at all. You lose extracurriculars, you lose sports, you lose socialization for young people. I mean, yeah. this is school is that from that you know from in K through 12, school is your life. I mean, that's true of virtually all kids. That's how they see their friends. That's how they learn how to interact. Um, uh, you know, with other human beings. Um, and so much of the antisocial behavior that we're seeing or the rise in antisocial behavior, I have to think, has something to do with, um, with, with interrupting the normal process of adolescent development that takes place in school. And, and then also the, you know, the, the disruption to parents, to working people who need to have someone you know, watch their kids. I mean, on some level, and it's most basic, even putting aside the reading and math scores, school for young kids at least is serving a basic daycare function that was just totally unavailable to some of the people who need it most for, for like a year and a half, which is crazy that we let it go on that long. I remember thinking the very beginning, I, I, I actually, I, I, I sounded the other note. I'm like, well, Okay, a couple weeks off from school, you know, there's kids are resilient. That'll some some of that loss occurs during every summer break. It gets made up. It's not going to be the end of the world. It's fine. I had no idea. I I truly did not believe that any serious education official would allow school to not resume in the fall. I thought, well, that that'd be crazy. Obviously, we won't do that. And then they did it in city after city, in state after state. And you know, now we're gonna. Suffer the consequences of that for, uh, for I think, for, for quite a while, sadly. Yeah. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Baccio, what's on your radar? Crime has emerged as one of the top issues on voters' minds in the lead-up to the midterm elections, now just two weeks away. Fully 80% of Americans told Gallup pollsters that they are worried about crime, including 43% of Democrats who worry about crime a great deal. A morning consult political poll found similar numbers. Over three quarters of respondents said violent crime is a major problem in the United States, with 60% saying crime would play a major role in who they vote for in November. And a News Nation poll of registered voters found that 85% of respondents said crime was either somewhat or very important to their decision about who they would vote for. From Minnesota to New York to Philadelphia to Texas to Oklahoma, voters are worried about their safety. 
they are right to worry. Homicides rose 5% last year, as did aggravated assaults, while gun assaults have increased by 8%. The murder rate is 44% higher than it was in 2019. Burglary is down from last year, but carjacking is up by 14%, and domestic violence is up by 4%. And it's impacting races across the country. In New York, Republican Lee Zeldin is closing in on Kathy Hochul in the race for governor, putting him in spitting distance of a role that a Republican hasn't held for 20 years. It's a feat he accomplished by focusing much of his campaign on crime, a theme for which the city provided him ample fodder. Crime then came home for Zeldin, quite literally. There was a shooting outside his house a few weeks ago while his teenage daughters were home, and he himself was accosted by an assailant holding a knife-like object on stage at a campaign. There's only one option. You're done. You're done. You're done. Zeldin's assailant was released almost immediately without bail, a perfect example of the theme of the Zeldin campaign. In response, the New York Times published an article pushing a conspiracy theory about whether Zeldin's supporters were behind his assailant's release. Uh, It later emerged that the man was a veteran and an addict, and he is now in rehab, something Zeldin condoned. For her part, Hochul has pushed for a rollback of the controversial progressive bail reform law, and her latest ad focused on crime. Let's watch that. A safe walk home at night, a subway ride free of fear, a safer New York for every child. That's what Kathy Hochul is working for as governor. And she passed a comprehensive crime plan to make it happen. It goes after illegal guns to make our neighborhoods safer, toughens bail laws to keep repeat offenders off our streets, and gets help for the homeless and those suffering with mental illness. You deserve to feel safe. And as your governor, I won't stop working until you do. If Hochul wins, she will have done so by at least making a show of caring about crime, which meant breaking with progressives on the issue. But New York was just one of many races that zeroed in on crime, something both Republicans and Democrats have mentioned in campaign ads, with Democrats actually bringing up crime even more than Republicans. It was the third most common theme in their ads, as opposed to the fourth for Republicans. But Republicans are clearly seen by voters as the party that cares more about the issue and has a better chance of tackling it, which is no surprise given that high-profile Democrats and progressives have repeatedly dismissed voters' concerns with crime, casting the fears of regular Americans as hysteria, a reflection of conservative fear-mongering. You have to wonder, is it really wise to gaslight voters and tell them they're wrong to care about what they're telling you they care about? Crime has become the new what's the matter with Kansas, except now instead of accusing people of being hypnotized by conservative media into voting against their economic interests, progressives accuse working class Americans experiencing a real rise in violent crime of inventing the cars that have been jacked, the purses that have been snatched, the beatings they've sustained on the subway and the loved ones they have lost to a rising murder rate. The latest tactic of the progressive blue check Twitterati has been to point out that the murder rate has risen mostly in states that voted for Donald Trump. They've taken to calling the the rise in crime the, quote, red state murder problem to reflect the fact that the top 10 murder rates in the U.S. are almost all in states that Donald Trump won. This talking point became a flashpoint during a gubernatorial debate in Oklahoma last week when the Democratic candidate Joy Hoffmeister pointed out that Oklahoma has a higher murder rate than New York. 
Watch. The fact is, the rates of violent crime are higher in Oklahoma under true. your watch than it's in New true. York and California. That's a fact. Well, we'll have that oh fact checked gosh. by the Frontier <laughs> Superintendent. It's also a fact that medical Hang on, marijuana... Oklahomans, do you believe we have higher crime than New York or California? That's what she just said. Safety and security is my top priority, and it will be as governor. It's an interesting clip because Hoffmeister is technically correct. Oklahoma does have a higher murder rate than New York. But when Governor Kevin Stitt got the audience to laugh at Hoffmeister based on how they feel about that data point, they weren't wrong either because murder in red states is extremely concentrated in cities with Democratic mayors and in specific communities. And this is the part that Democrats don't want to talk about. Progressives are right that New York City and California don't rank high in murder per 100,000 people. And they are right that the top 10 murder rates per 100,000 in the U.S. are in places like Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, Alabama, Missouri, and South Carolina. The South has historically always been more violent, the result of what social psychologist Richard E. Nisbet called the culture of honor, in which a man's reputation is central to his economic survival, which makes violent retaliation against symbolic slights more of a norm in the South than elsewhere. We also know that poverty is intimately correlated with violent crime, and Southern states continue to rank poorer than Northern ones. And it's true that rural America has also seen a rise in murder rates since the pandemic began, up to 25%. And yet, when you look at the cities that have the highest murder rate per 100,000, they are cities led by Democratic mayors, Philadelphia, Memphis, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Kansas City, Louisville. Take these cities out of the equation and the murder rate in those red states plummets. Worse, if you look at the FBI's new crime data, which was released on October 5th, it's clear that a disproportionately high percentage of murder victims are black Americans. Take Oklahoma, a state that's over 70% white and just 7% black, yet black Americans represented 36% of the victims of homicide in Oklahoma. Or take Louisiana, a state that is 32% black, in which black Americans represented fully 77% of the homicide victims, according to this data. In Mississippi, black Americans represented over 80% of the victims of homicide. New York is just 15% black, but black Americans represented 65% of homicide victims, the FBI data shows. The FBI data also shows that, as in other cases, the vast majority of this crime is intraracial, meaning it is committed by people of the same race as their victims. Look, it's important to bear in mind that the FBI data is incomplete. The FBI is completing the process of switching from a system that counted criminal episodes with one that counts individual crimes. And not all precincts have reported their statistics yet. But what data we have is appalling. There is a massacre going on of people who have an 80% likelihood of being Democratic voters. It's rather cynical, given this data, to crow about a red state murder problem. What could possibly justify the erasure of these victims from the public discourse on the left? There are another, a number of reasons that I believe Democrats and progressives don't want to talk about crime. 
for starters, of course, it's always difficult to take responsibility that's happening on your watch. And this is absolutely happening on Democrats and progressives watch. Bail reform may not alone be the source of the problem, but combine it with a defund the police ethos that demonized law enforcement and a prosecutorial approach like Alvin Bragg's declines to prosecute quality of life infractions and even gun possession, and suddenly all roads are leading to favoring criminals over their victims, which of course leads to more crime. There are also some more justifiable reasons for the taboo on discussing crime. The right, spends ye the right spent years trying to shut down important conversations about police reform by asking, what about black-on-black -black crime? A racist deflection from an entrenched struggle black Americans face to secure equality before the law. I think there is also genuine cause for concern for mass incarceration, both from a fiscal and a spiritual point of view. But just one in five people in prison or jail are there for a nonviolent drug offense. Nearly three-fifths of people in state prison are there for violent offenses. Decarceration attempts all too often end up sending these people back into poor communities of color where they continue to prey on the weak. It's time to ask. Are progressive pieties really enough to outweigh the thousands and thousands of victims of violent crime? Can we not both decry the murder of George Floyd and the drive-by shooting of his four-year-old niece? Shouldn't the very thing that makes people, myself included, hesitant to talk about race and crime make us all the more anxious to defend its victims? Here to help me answer these really difficult questions is a brilliant, brilliant man, Wilfred Riley, assistant professor of political science at Kentucky State University and author of the books Taboo and Hate Crime Hoax. Welcome, Wilfred. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Bacha. I hope I don't disappoint after that intro. <laughs> So your work focuses on exactly these questions, why there is a taboo on talking about these really important realities on the left. Walk us through the argument. What have you found in your research? Why is it so hard to talk about this? Well, I, I think you covered a lot of this. I mean, so the, the reality of where crime occurs really isn't that much disputed. And I mean, you made this point already at, at great length, but I mean, when you talk about a quote-unquote red state murder problem, the large majority of the murders in red states are concentrated in blue voting, heavily minority districts. And there are complex reasons for this. And I'll just say, as an African-American man, part of this very bluntly, uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, past racism, we're much younger as a population, often decades younger, we're more urban. The African-American crime rate overall is about 2.4 times the white crime rate. This isn't disputed. You can just go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics annual report, pull up that figure. So the main reason for the difference in crime between red and blue states is demographic. The majority of red states are in the South, where not only is there an honor culture, not only are there many poor white Latino Americans, many groups struggling with crime, but you also just have a much larger black population percentage. And adjusting for that, for that younger, more urban community, that closes the gap almost entirely. In fact, in the one crude model I've run on this, it reverses it. So this argument that just sort of standard Republican areas, North Dakota, are going to be very violent is whether you like the pachyderms or not, that's just not accurate. And I think most people at some level know that's not accurate. The New York is more dangerous than North Dakota. Why is it taboo to talk about this? Because I think of the incredible taboo against saying anything that could be construed as, quote unquote, blaming the victim on the left. 
I mean, it's simply obvious that when, whether you're talking about working class Appalachian communities, which are all around me in Kentucky, which has quite a high crime rate, or you're talking about the hood, bluntly, inner city black communities, there are cultural situational reasons for all this crime. But saying that, saying this isn't a result of contemporary racism, that's very taboo on the left. Many of my progressive friends, even in academia, have trouble expressing that. But the simple reality is that when you don't talk about that, when you don't talk about the reality that good integrated police forces reduce crime, a lot of people die. And, and that's what we're seeing now. And that's why we're seeing this incredible, you know, 720 degree triple axle pirouette from the people on the political left, like Hochul, who'd been at least nodding along with defund the police until recently, back towards sort of a, a tough on crime attitude. But we'll we'll see how close they get to actually discussing the real issues here. The red state murder problem, quote unquote, is not the issue. You know, I think there are a couple issues here we're all kind of hitting at. One being, as, as you just kind of mentioned, the, the age discrimination of so much crime uh, in, in our cities and other places, you know, we're talking about people, broadly speaking, between the ages of 15 and 30, a, lo a lot of them teenagers, a lot of them being failed by kind of social structures, um, after school programs, you know, not having communities, uh, church, th things that in another generation would have, would have brought, you know, at-risk youth back from the brink. Uh, that being one issue, and then another being, as far as I can tell, an extraordinary me mental illness problem, or mentally ill people you know, living in the streets, not being treated and engaging in violence, who, who should be, you know, even if it's not going to be captured by the criminal justice system, then by, the, by a mental health facility or something like that. Um, are, are those two categories getting worse? Are we doing less now to deal with those two categories of crime that, that from what I can tell, make up a, a large proportion of, of, the, of the rise in crime that we're seeing? I think so. I, I think there's another elephant in the room here, though, which is the recent post-George Floyd, quote-unquote, defund the police movement. I mean, during kind of the Black Lives Matter era, we've seen, and the most reliable crime data is on murder, so let, let's talk murder. We've seen an incredible surge in American homicides. So murders have gone from 14,194 in 2014, when the Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin protest period really began, to about 21,000 today. And we see a particular spike in murders, which took us over 20,000 just after Mr. Floyd was killed, um, murdered, I think we've all said, frankly, in uh, early 2020. So... The reason there's actually a sort of a causal mechanism, as we would say here. I mean, myself, Bob Moranto and Pat Wolf at the University of Arkansas actually wrote an academic paper looking at this. And one of the things you find is that police stops regular broken window style interactions with the citizenry. Those dropped by about 40 percent across at least those major cities I or we were able to measure starting at this time, starting in May, June of 2020. And since then, you've seen a 44% increase in homicides. I mean, the graphs track almost perfectly. So I, I think we've always failed poor kids to some extent. I don't mean to be sarcastic about that, but I think there's something else that's going on right now. And mental illness, yeah, that's, that's a big part of this. I mean, when you look at the homelessness issue in cities like Portland or my hometown of Chicago, 
I don't think this is going to be resolved just with the assignment of housing. I mean, you're talking about many long-term drug problems. Mm -hmm. You're talking about people who are homeless in many cases traveling to places like the West Coast to be homeless there. But you, you have an intersection of these issues because at the same time mental illness is growing, at the same time both the left and the right for different reasons don't want to address homelessness, you're also seeing de-policing. So, I mean, the plain fact is you had loitering and vagrancy laws in most cities until the modern era, the 70s, the 80s, that were pretty rigorously enforced. So it's not actually as though there's no way to clear up an encampment of 800 tents that's across the street from the city courthouse in, say, Portland. The, the problem is that there's a lack of the main, if you will, the will to do that. And I, I think... As people get tired of stepping around needles and dodging muggers and so on in major cities, we're going to see that will come back. And if the Democrats are not willing to commit to doing that, I think you're going to see a lot more Republicans elected in urban areas than you otherwise would have. So, yeah, your, your points are very good ones. But I also think that just the lack of cops is the big factor there. That 40 percent drop and that 40 percent rise, those those aren't coincidences. Well, can I ask you, you know, there, there is, a, of course, a racist way to talk about this. You know, Breitbart used to have a tag for black on black crime. Like, that's obviously a racist way to address what is an important topic. What, what would you say to leftist progressives, people like me who care so much about this, but feel really uncomfortable talking about it, feel like, you know, the the people who have brought this up because the left won't end up being people who you really don't want to be in the same company as, you know, do, what do you, how would you tell people like why it's important to care about this and how to talk about it? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is because facts matter. And if you don't address real facts, you end up chasing ghosts while people die. I mean, so I will say one thing about the Breitbart black on black crime tab. I mean, to some extent, that was a joke. What they were doing was saying that the media was focusing so intently on these rare outlier cases. I mean, police brutality, whites murdering black people, so on down the line, that they were ignoring this graphic reality of street violence in the city. So without without defending Breitbart, really. I mean, they weren't posting black on white crimes. They were just saying over and over again, look, here's a tax paying citizen that was killed. And I mean, th this is a reality. I mean, in my book, Taboo, I look at actual patterns of interracial crime because in the American upper middle class, again, for two or three years, we heard about barbecue Becky and pool party Paula, more seriously, Dylan Roof, uh, just constant Caucasian attacks on black people. So we take a look at the actual data there. And what I find is, first of all, violent crime involving whites and blacks, i.e. a black attacker or a white attacker, is about 3% of all serious index crime. I mean, the year I looked, there were 20 million crimes. Only 600,000 fit that very specific bill. But more to the point, interracial crime was also 80% black on white. So there's, there's this simple refusal, as you mentioned, on the part of a lot of well-intentioned progressives to look at the reality, to look at the data. And that's why the right-wing media started mocking that. But in terms of how to address it, I guess my simple point is facts aren't racist. Okay. If you look at something, if even the margins, if either V. Dare or Jacobin says something, that might not be who you're going to cite in your academic article. But if you look that up and it turns out to be real and it turns out there is a crime problem in whatever community, I've mentioned poor white communities, Latino communities as well, it's foolish to pretend that that's not real. It's foolish to pretend 
that the real issue in America is sort of upper middle class whites abusing black mm. people when you're looking at yeah. these murder numbers. Well, Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank, thank you for having me. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. President Biden was asked to respond to polls showing that Americans trust Republicans more than Democrats on the economy. Let's watch. Poll after poll shows that the, uh, American, the American people trust Republicans on the economy and think that Republicans should control Congress. How do you, how well, do you first break through all, that? I'm not sure about the polls because, you know, the way people conduct polls today, it's hard. Ninety percent of it is you get on a telephone where you have to call seven times to get somebody to, to answer the phone. <laughs> it's interesting to see uh, Democrats like Biden kind of say exactly what Republicans have been saying about polls for, I think, as long as I've been alive. Uh, what did you make of that? My response to that was hashtag relatable. I mean, yeah. who among us does not encounter polls that say the exact opposite of what we want them to by being like, well, what's the sample size? Well, did they get an equal number of Democrats or Republicans? I mean, this is so relatable. We all do this. We all have confirmation bias. We all want polls to say what we want them to. And we all encounter things that support our arguments with a lot more compassion and willingness to believe that it's true and we encounter things that don't support our arguments with like the highest levels of skepticism so you know a president who struggled i think to be relatable to the american people i really looked at that and went mm, it me <laughs> yeah yeah on the substantive question though um you know it's it's interesting that the polls are heading that way i i don't know if you know in your views uh Bacha, would you necessarily trust uh, Republicans more than Democrats. I don't trust either of them to mishandle the economy. I, I think they bo both administrations, uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations, have made just wildly bad um, economic calls so many times. But obviously, we're in a very dire situation right now. Voters are feeling it. Um, the economy, you know, taking center stage. Food prices, gas prices, etc. Clearly, the administration is not um, is not conveying to the American people that its priorities are in line with their priorities. And uh, you know, I don't know that that feels like um, some of that is just is just the nature of the beast, right? The government only has so much control over the economy, but it does have some control. Um, you know, we're spending. You know, millions more for Ukraine's defense every week, every month um, that could be spent elsewhere um, and other things. So uh, so it, I, I, I guess I understand why if voters are saying, well, we're kind of sick of, of Democrats' priorities, of Biden's priorities on this, we want to give Republicans another shot. I think if Kevin McCarthy makes good on his promise that the Republicans' approach to Ukraine is going to be no more money time to negotiate, that is going to have a big impact on inflation because it's going to impact the price of food globally. It's mm -hmm. going to price, affect the, the price of gas. Um, the Republicans also are better on you know, gas, oil, energy than the Democrats. And that is where 50% of the inflation is coming from. But other than what that one, you know, throwaway comment from McCarthy about Ukraine, I don't hear the Republicans offering any plans to get the price of food down, which is, you know, food and gas are really the most important issues when it comes to inflation. Um, I haven't heard any. They'll say, oh, less government spending. 
maybe, but that's not going to bring down the price of chicken, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I really feel like you that there, you know, it's clear that the Biden administration has no clue what to do, no plan for for helping inflation. Um, the the approach to bringing down the price of gas has been to release the um, strategic reserves, which is a terrifying thing to to be doing and not a long term solution. Um, you know, on that issue, I do believe the Republicans are better, but not on the other issues. So it's it's you know it is dispiriting, but. But I, I, I do think that, you know, to say these polls are wrong seems a little bit like wishful thinking. Americans, I think, are very good at judging what's in their best interests. I think it would be impossible to understand the Biden administration's approach to the energy crisis. I don't understand it. I, I can't imagine, and I, you know, we pay rapt attention to this kind of thing. I can't imagine it would ever make sense to a voter who has a lot of other things to worry about from, you know, in between you know, trying to move away from oil from fossil fuels in our own country, but then we still have to beg, but then we're also begging Saudi Arabia for more of the oil, even though we're, we're right. deprioritizing that in our own country, and then maybe we'll go to Venezuela for it, and then, but like it just doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and then Saudi Arabia is not even is, is not even playing ball, despite us overlooking their horrific human rights abuses. So like, what was the point of that? It's just, it's like, I, I don't know, these, these uh, nations like Saudi Arabia do not respect Biden enough to, or they don't fear him or something. They're not, you know, we, we were promised more stable relationships with foreign countries once uh, Trump was out of the picture. And I think that was a reasonable assertion because Trump was kind of erratic in the things he said. And we were told that he was not well respected by some of our peer countries, leaders in Europe, et cetera. But I don't know. It doesn't look like uh, Biden has this commanding presence and has been able to get what he wants out of people like like Saudi Arabia, obviously, a, a, you know, worse or more reckless behavior from uh, from Putin than we saw under the Trump administration. Uh, I, I don't know. At some point, you have to say, well, things are not going that well, that, that great, even if you know, Trump seemed quite irrational. I, I agree. But you know, we had we had more um, we had more continuity in our economy and in other things, um, you know, before COVID came along, at least. Well, speaking of commanding respect, the president also weighed in on Vice President Kamala Harris's job as VP so far. Let's hear what he had to say. The vice president of the United States, yeah. Vice President Harris. How's she doing? You're almost two years in. How's she doing? She's doing great. She is a uh, first of all, she's smart as hell. She has she has a backbone like a ramrod, and she has enormous integrity. And uh, but if you take a look out there, there isn't any public figure that is, you know, sixty percent favorable ratings. I mean, you now most of the and but she is doing a great job. What is she doing, though? I think that's the question that doesn't quite get uh, quite get answered there. I get why people have to ask him that. I do, I feel so uncomfortable. First of all, I hate when they when he when the signs of his age show because I think 
we've talked about this before we debated this actually I think we probably disagree about this but I I just don't I it's clear that he's slowing down but I don't think he's cognitively failing I don't think any of the decisions I think the decisions he's making are mm-hmm. bad but I think if Kamala Harris were president or if Pete Buttigieg were president they'd be making the exact same ones because they're totally in line with where the Democratic Party is at which is sort of trying to ha- you know half pay obeisance to the to the progressive left while also pretending that they're not so I you know but it I it just does make me it, to me um, you know Biden's kind of um, th- those sort of cognitive slip-ups they're a lot like Trump's tweeting like it, it's something that you know people love to discuss they love to sort of create they create sort of feeling and emotion and drama mm-hmm. um, the right loves to attack him for it but it's really immaterial to the decisions he's making and unfortunately I feel a little bit like Kamala Harris is one of those things like a sort of uncomfortable fact that you know she you know she has been a little bit set up to fail they gave her um, a lot of uh, 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 just a brief that was full of things that she had no authority to really make good on and so she was put in this position where she was in charge of the most important issues, but like take immigration, for example, the Biden administration was certainly not going to let her do anything close to enforce the border. Um, so it, it's it's it just the whole topic makes me really uncomfortable. What about you? No, I there's there was no hope for success on her kind of immigration mission. Obviously, Congress needs to do something to cha- to fix uh, our immigration security and then our immigration policies. It's really on Congress to do that. So, yeah, I, you feel sorry for her stuck with that job, which is obviously going to look um, now. Now, she could have probably messaged on it a bit more effectively. She could have gone there more, et cetera. So I, it still is ultimately somewhat on her. But, yeah, she was stuck with this uh, this thankless task, which is pretty pretty amazing because Biden, you know, maybe he's got another four years in him. I think we're kind of hotly debating that and we'll see. But she's going to be his kind of de facto successor. And I think quite a politically weak one, which will, you know, give the Republicans a huge opportunity um, four years from now, if not, if they haven't already seized this opportunity and then screwed that up, (laughs) letting things, you know, circle back to Democrats in four years. I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll see, I guess. But we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. The Illinois Safety, Accountability, Fairness, and Equity Today Act, also known as the Safety Act, is a criminal justice reform law that will eliminate cash bail come January 1st. The law has been met with mixed reviews and heavy backlash, including from founder and senior pastor of New Beginnings Church of Chicago, Pastor Corey B. Brooks, who wrote in Newsweek, quote, these movements have all been pushed by elites in the name of helping blacks, but not one of these people has ever visited my neighborhood to ask what we think. It's almost like we have no say, like we are some sort of social experiment, pawns without minds of our own. The pastor joins us now to discuss. Welcome, pastor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So tell us where you're joining from and why. So I'm on top of the roof of a building that we made um, to protest the violence and the poverty in Chicago number one, but also to build a community center that costs upward of $35 million that deals with poverty, um, that deals with changes the lives of criminals. Um, I've been here now for 11 months living inside this tent behind me, and um, we're breaking ground on, on, on Saturday, hopefully. Hmm. That's incredible. Um, <clears throat> go ahead, Bacha. 
I was going to say, you write in your piece so movingly about how these um, criminal justice reforms that are designed to help the criminals end up sending criminals back into your neighborhood where they end up preying on vulnerable people who are in your community. Tell us a little bit more about that. You know, I think one of the things that I, I wanted to make a point about in the article is that um, these, these individuals are definitely criminals and we need to see them as such. And whenever we're allowing them to come back into our community without consequences, it only damages us even more. We're already dealing with severe violence. We're already dealing with lots of crime. We've had the highest number of carjackings that we've ever seen in the city of Chicago, but yet we decide to side with criminals instead of victims. And I think this is a, a behavior that we're seeing, not just in Chicago, but in New York. They already have experienced crime going up. And anyone who says that it's not related to that, that bill, cash, cashless bill system, um, they're not thinking correctly. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure we represent um, what I, I know the other side would say, because we've had you know, guests on this show uh, who are in favor of this law. And they would point out, so you know, first of all, these people have not been convicted yet, so they're you know, still generally entitled to due process and you know, really to freedom until they are convicted. And that because the, the you know, cash bail is essentially keeping people locked up who can't afford to make bail, who are not necessarily the people at greatest risk to the community, right? It's not, it's not discriminating based on who is a danger, but rather just who can afford to pay. Argument would be to that is that if you're talking about uh, petty crimes, misdemeanors, then understandable. We, we, we understand it. We get it. But we're not talking about misdemeanors. We're not talking about petty crimes. We're talking about felonies. We're talking about individuals who have been charged with uh, serious criminal activity. And those individuals are being released back into our society to commit more crimes. Uh, could we do something better to, to speed up the criminal process so that uh, these persons who are alleged are doing these crimes could have a speedier trial? Absolutely, I'm all for that. Mm -hmm. But I'm definitely not for allowing them to come back into our community as we, as we see consistently uh, crimes being committed. Um, one of the things that I would say to them is that I work with criminals. I understand the mindset and the mentality of criminals. And if you let them back into society without any commit more crimes, even while they're waiting on trials. Hmm. Well, New York yeah. Attorney General Letitia James has publicly championed the state's cashless bail law, saying she's now open to making adjustments to the measure after a recent spike in violent and other crimes and polling revealing New Yorkers' top concerns going into the midterms is this surging crime rate. You know, this is definitely something that um, that people care about in, in their communities. And, you know, you're in the community, you're, you're you know, working with people um, who are who are facing poverty, who have been in the criminal justice system. You know, I, I think it's always interesting to get that perspective because the the media tends to uh, speak with one voice about you know what people actually care about. But the people you're talking to, the people in the community, is crime absolutely one of their top concerns? Crime is absolutely the top concern. When you have individuals that can't go to parks because of shootouts, when you have individuals who can't walk to the store, when you have individuals who are walking to school, uh, young girls getting raped and uh, getting shot, that's a major problem. Safety is an issue for us in our community. And if we can't provide safety, then how can we transform these communities? How can we turn them around? Uh, in the case of New York, where you have um, the, the 
that, you know, they were all for the cashless bail system. Now there's a flip flop. Of course, there's going to be a flip flop when you are an elite and you don't go and you don't talk to the people who are involved in these type of situations. Then you have to flip flop. You have to come back and say, hey, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe we should rethink it. And that's consistently uh, what we see all the time with these individuals who don't uh, care about the victims. And I think we need to side more on the side of victims. And your, your point of view, though, comes from you work with criminals as well. I mean, that is the thing is you are deeply embedded in a community where you're seeing things from both sides and you're saying, look, this is not compassionate to either side because you in the piece in Newsweek, you talk about having spoken to criminals, spoken to felons who have been released. What they told you would have happened if they had had no cash bail. Talk to us about that. Yeah, we, we our, our Project Hood, uh, Hood stands for Helping Others Obtain Destiny. Um, people can find out information on our website, projecthood.org, how we work with criminals. We work with individuals who are in gangs. We work with individuals who have committed murders. We work with individuals who have come out of prison. Some of them are even on our staff. They've been in prison for 30 years for committing crimes. Some of them are, are work on our staff and they've committed crimes in the past and served time. And I've spoken with these individuals and they talk about how uh, if they had been released during a time of being charged with a crime, it only would have given them opportunities to commit more crimes, especially when they think that they're going to be spending some prison time. A lot of times they're going to be trying to make more as much money as they possibly can illegally so that they can take care of themselves while they're incarcerated. So we cannot give these individuals an opportunity to come back into our community be released into our community and commit these crimes all over again. We see this consistently uh, in Chicago with, with the gun charges. We have individuals who are being charged with guns and there's individuals who have been charged with gun charges and released back into uh, our society only to be charged again and again and again. This happens consistently and this is something that needs to be dealt with. And I'm sure even the individuals, the citizens in New York, uh, they're, they're now looking at the situation. And I, hope, I wish that Illinois would look at New York and learn uh, that what's going to happen. And uh, in our case, I believe it's gonna be even worse because we're already dealing with a lot of crime. Mm. Well, Pastor Brooks, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your perspective and stay safe out there. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and Dr. Mehmet Oz will face off Tuesday night in their first and most likely only debate in their race for the Senate. A Fox 29 Insider Advantage poll shows the two tied at 46 percent. Dr. Oz certainly feeling the pressure as he just donated a million dollars to his own campaign from his personal fortune, which adds to the seven million he donated last quarter alone. Fetterman has made clear that none of his campaign finances come from his personal accounts. Joining us now to discuss is senior national correspondent for News Nation and co-host of the upcoming debate, Brian Enton. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you with us. So obviously this race has gotten a lot closer. You know, months, some months ago, I, I think the wide perception was that Dr. Oz was not a particularly exciting candidate, even for many Republicans. You know, whether you fall into the anti-Trump or pro-Trump category, he's, he's not really 
in, in a candidate exciting any aspect of the base. However, Fetterman has really, you know, obviously had his health issues and has not been able to kind of make the case for himself, which I, 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 my perception is has really allowed Dr. Oz to catch up. Um, what are the expectations for, for this debate, uh, given how little uh, Fetterman has been able to, you know, articulate his message uh, since, his, since his health issues? Yeah, it's interesting when you look back just a month or so ago, Fetterman uh, was ahead by, by almost double digits. And you mentioned the recent polling. It's unbelievable. They are really neck and neck now. Um, and I think you, you bring up the health issues. That clearly has something to do with things. We've been on, on the ground here for the last couple of days talking with voters about all the big issues. And, and Fetterman's health continues to come up over and over again. I think there are people who still feel like they don't really know what the situation is actually is. Of course, there was that NBC interview where, where we saw him, we see him giving speeches, uh, but they're really, really interested to see how he does up on the debate stage. They're going to have the closed captioning. How is that going to work? Is he going to be able to understand the questions? Is there really going to be able to be a back and forth between him and Dr. Oz? Um, it's something that voters are watching very, very closely right now. So what accommodations, um, if any, has the campaign asked of you? Is that something that you're at liberty to share? Uh, so we know that there will be closed captioning, um, and, and that's sort of the extent of it. So while the debate is happening, everything that is said out loud, whether it's what Dr. Oz says or what um, the moderators are asking, will be on a screen. The words will be on the screen uh, for, for Fetterman to read. Uh, so that's the extent of, of uh, sort of what they're doing for him at this point. And Dr. Oz has obviously agreed to it, too. Hmm. Well, former President Obama has gotten involved in the campaign, cutting multiple ads for the Fetterman campaign. In them, Obama touts Fetterman support for a women's right to choose. Um, and I know there was some criticism of Obama from Democrats uh, that he hasn't uh, done more already, uh, given that he's a relatively popular figure, you know, nationally, certainly among Democrats, arguably, arguably more so than a lot of uh, kind of figureheads of the party thus far. Um, does, does Obama's endorsement or vocal support um, help in Pennsylvania lend credence to the Fetterman campaign? Look, I think so. I mean, he's obviously a massive national figure. I don't think it's strange that he's he's held out to sort of the end. I think we've seen that happen in the past, you know, a couple of weeks to the midterms, a week out. Uh, he, he really starts getting behind candidates. We know he's going to be on the ground in some of these states. So I don't think that's unusual. You bring up um, women's rights, abortion, uh, you know, just talking with voters here. That is one of those things that comes up over and over uh, again. And I think what's going to be interesting, which might work in Fetterman's favor, is you have women here, especially in the suburbs who we've talked to, talked to, who have been lifetime Republicans. They have never voted for a Democrat. They say they're going to vote for Fetterman. They're going to mm. vote for a Democrat for the very first time uh, just, just because of the abortion issue. Hmm, hmm. And Brian, what what is the tone people take when they discuss the health issues? I mean, I find that there's obviously these are important issues, but the tone of the attacks against him have been, I think, rather cruel. Is Has that come up at all? Um, how do people talk about this on the ground? Yeah, I think that um, it's such a touchy issue, you know, and it's hard to get mm -hmm. people to talk about. Um, and we've talked to people on both sides, and I think both sides sort of feel somewhat offended. Um, 
people who are who are pro-life obviously um feel they feel like their voice isn't getting out there as much and and i call them almost like closet pro-lifers there's a lot of women around who are pro-life who have friends who are pro-choice who aren't going to come out and respond to polls and they're not going to talk to the media about their stance uh but but they feel very passionately um the way they do same same with on the other side it's just it's just such a touchy issue um and, and you mentioned the ads um i think some women have been offended by them i think They've also been offended by ads that, that attack Fetterman's health to a certain degree. You know, a lot of people have, have family members who have had strokes, who, who have had strokes themselves and know about the recovery process and know that you can truly recover. Um, and it's been interesting. Some people telling us, oh, I'm really concerned. I want to see what he does in the debate. Other people almost off put when you even ask about Fetterman's health, saying, wait a minute, you know, that doesn't mean that he doesn't really understand what's going on or really understand the issues uh, impacting our state. You know, you mentioned uh, voters who are going to vote for Fetterman or for a Democrat for the first time because of the abortion issue. Of course, we know that's working in reverse as well with some other issues. You know, we know there are uh, Democrats and independents who are going to vote Republican for the first time, uh, in particular because of frustration with um, schools, curriculum, and then crime, of course. Uh, crime, I think, really taking kind of center stage uh, in the last few weeks as the reality of, uh, of statistics uh, if Philadelphia, for instance, you know, has has just obscenely high uh, violent crime rate right now. Um, do you expect that to come up in the debate? And, and how are the candidates uh, the candidates handling that issue? One hundred percent. And I think you use the right word obscene. It is insane here in Philadelphia, the crime situation. Um, and I say that just totally unbiased. It's just statistics. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. If you live in this area, it is something that you deal with every single day. So many people who we've talked to have said it is issue number one. If you can't go outside your house and go to your kid's little league game or walk your kid to school and feel safe, I mean, what else could possibly be more important? And yes, there are Democrats um, who have never voted for Republican, but are so fed up with the crime here that they say they will vote Republican for the first time. The stats are insane. They had a uh, record-breaking year for, for homicides last year, and they expect to beat it this year. 50% more violent robberies this year over last year. We spent a night out in, um, in Kensington, which is one of the neighborhoods in, in Philly where they've really seen an uptick in crime. I mean, people walk around with tourniquets in their purse because they're so used to finding gunshot victims. Um, they have Narcan because of the overdoses. Uh, there, there's so many um, shootings that they don't even use ambulances two thirds of the time. They have to put the victims in police cars and rush them to the hospital because there's not even enough uh, ambulances. So, so I would say just being here to me, it feels like that's issue number one uh, in terms of what voters are thinking about. Yeah, no question. Uh, well, all right, Brian, where can uh, we watch the debate on Tuesday? Yeah, News Nation uh, tomorrow night. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna have the debate. We'll have a pre-show, uh, and then the debate is tomorrow night. It's gonna be the only debate um, that they do, so it'll be certainly very very interesting to watch. Which which I also want to mention is something that I found frustrates voters that there's only one debate. We've seen that in other states too. Mm. You, you can only get so much out of one debate. They they say why aren't there two or three? Obviously, there there's a lot going on behind the scenes uh, with Fetterman mm. and Dr. Oz when it comes to that. Though. Mm. Good question. All right. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, looking forward to it. Thanks. And we'll have more Rising right after this.
President Biden's prize student loan forgiveness program was put on hold this past Friday after a federal court of appeals for the Eighth Circuit temporarily blocked the initiative from going forward until legal challenges brought against it in six GOP states play out. As of last Friday, some 22 million Americans have already applied for loan forgiveness. Biden could be dealt a major blow should the program be permanently halted, and Democrats will surely feel it too, especially among young voters. A recent NBC News poll shows that if young Americans make it to the ballot box this November, Democrats stand a chance in the midterms, and if they do not vote, the GOP will win. Here to discuss how Biden's plan is hanging in the balance is Democratic strategist Amisha Cross. Welcome, Amisha. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So here's my question. I mean, voters can't really hold it against Biden if something he tried to do for them was blocked by the courts. So do you feel that this will impact the midterms or that this will impact elections going forward? Do you feel that voters will hold this against President Biden if it is not enacted or that they will see his attempt to do something for them and respect that? Absolutely. And first, I'm going to level set here just a little bit. Um, this is a delay, not a block. And with that being said, um, I think it speaks volumes that the Supreme Court itself has not moved to block this. So we're looking at basically a procedural focus that was expected by this administration, by the Department of, in uh, of Education. Everyone knew that those Republican states were going to push against this and that this would more than likely happen. With that being said, we're still watching millions of borrowers uh, apply for forgiveness or apply for relief every single day. And I would also argue that we have to move this outside of the, the younger voter spectrum, because even though it's marketed and a lot of the conversation has been around younger voters, quite thank, frankly, this also appeals to parent plus loan borrowers, which are the parents of those who have already borrowed, as well as many people who are millennials. And right now, we know the oldest millennials are already in their early 40s. So we have to be very strategic about who we're having this conversation about, because the majority of those who are applying, quite frankly, are older, I think, than this context of this conversation allows. But this issue is a huge one, and it goes into college affordability, one that the president has been leaning very strongly in on. When he was running in 2020, over 80% of the people polled, whether they were from blue states, red states, or purple states, they prioritized uh, college affordability and student loan debt, recognizing that it prevents people from getting forward with their lives. It prevents them from buying homes. In many cases, it has paused people from deciding when to or if they want to start families, cars, what types of options they will have for employment and what types of jobs they will take. All of these things go into context. So I think that in this election cycle, obviously this is important, but quite frankly, it is a president who is checking off the box of things that he literally ran on in 2020 and was being held accountable to by many of those who voted for him. Yeah, I personally would love to see this policy halted because I don't I don't support it whatsoever. I don't know whether any of these legal challenges will amount to much. I am not persuaded at all that the HEROES Act uh, authorizes the president to, to cancel this amount of student debt. That, to, to my mind, that was clearly about uh, people serving uh, in the military, and it was about delaying it. So I, I don't find the legal rationale that compelling. That said, I have no idea what a court will say. You know, I, I think any person should be able to sue to stop this, but we've had a problem determining standing because the current 
you know, the, the current legal or judicial philosophy of the court does not hold that just because you're a taxpayer, you are necessarily negatively impacted by a policy. That's how, that's how the Supreme Court would feel about things. If I, if I ran the, the world, I would want taxpayers to be able to sue about their you know, tax dollars being spent in Ukraine, being spent anywhere, being spent on anything. But that's just not, it, realistically, that's, that's not where things are. So what do you think, Bacha? Do you think this could put a dent in um, young people turning out uh, for, for Biden? I, I, I could actually, I could see very progressive young people saying, you know what, the court's stopping it if that is what happens. But he didn't do enough. He could have done this earlier. He could have tried harder. Uh, I, I actually could see them holding Biden accountable for this. I mean, I do think it gave him the ability to say, look, I tried, right? You know, the the that sort of symbolic gesture, I did my best for you. I mean, you know, I, I sort of am more on your side of this. I think that that symbolic gesture showed exactly who the Democrats see as their base, which is the college-educated voter. Um, but um, it, it seems to me like it would be so churlish to to hold him responsible for the actions of the court when the Biden administration has worked so assiduously to make sure that there is no plaintiff who has standing to sue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I do feel that it would be surprising to me for people to hold that against against him. Well, and once the, uh, don't you think, Amisha, once the, because I agree with you that this is really a temporary delay, um, and once the payments start going out to millions of people, I don't know how you roll that, but even if later it's decided some judicial authority says, no, the underlying rationale for this is not legitimate, which again, I agree with, but once the money has already been paid out, there's going to be a certain point where it, like, it just can't be undone, even if the, the justification doesn't hold up, right? I mean, what are they going to make everybody, <laughs> everybody who got the loan forgiveness write a check for that amount? I, I don't see that happening. This I just is don't see be, that happening. This is going to be a hard sell for Republicans because the thing is, um, when you're talking about people who are under 45, largely those individuals have so much student loan debt. The average student loan debt in this country for a minority person graduating from college is close to 60K. So whether it was forgiven at that 10K range or 20K if they were Pell Grant recipients, that still leaves them with quite the burden when it comes to student loan debt. Beyond that, the the other issue that we have is the again the rising cost of higher education, and that's something yeah, that's that the administration has not issue. necessarily been able to tackle. But the student loan debt issue and the student loan crisis. This is the largest growing expenditure in the United States and one that is not showing any signs of stopping. So I think that we do have to pay that very close attention. And um, Vacha said something earlier. It's not just. Uh, college educated or college graduates. To be honest, the 10 or 20K, should that forgiveness go through, which I believe that it will, the majority of people who will have their debt completely forgiven are people who never graduated at all. Well, but Because a lot of our country, quite frankly, goes to college or starts higher ed process, but doesn't ever see it across the finish line. But they still have student loan debt. And yeah. sometimes that is 10, 20, $30,000, sometimes more, depending on where you went. But are we, we're gonna make this whole problem, I think we're gonna make this whole pro- pro- uh, problem much worse by, by doing this, because the, the incentives now for the universities, I mean, this, the, the, the universities have no incentives to keep costs down. But the universities have zero incentive before this. So so but now the, if we're going to move to income-based... can't be perfection. Well, uh, yeah, it's going to be, but I think it's going to be even worse because of the income-based repayment component of the Biden plan. Uh, because now, if you're not, it's good, we're going to get to a place where most people taking out these loans have never have any intention of paying them back 
whatsoever. They're going to pay whatever it is, you know, ten, some portion of your income for 10 years and it's going to go away. So then why are the, the colleges going to raise it even more? That is a argument that doesn't necessarily play out, statistically speaking, because these colleges have been raising tuition anyway, and that's been yeah. happening since the 80s. And it extrapolated and went even larger yeah. in the early 2000s with no signs of stopping, and it's not been regulated largely as well. But well, that is that is a bigger problem that exists outside of this yeah. uh, of this student loan debt conversation and, and burden that's associated with it. These individuals are not choosing lower paying jobs to get out paying student loan debt. Let's let's be real here. Since the mid 2000s, we had how many recessions? We've had how many economic downturns? We've had how much where individuals, quite frankly, a lot of the positions that were available for our parents or people who are a little bit younger than them yeah. aren't even available today. So we have to be very honest about what jobs are available to those graduating from college. Also, how long um, recessionary traits last? Because quite frankly, after the crash of 08, it took almost 10 years for people to try to gear up and feel as though they were in an okay place. And then we hit another spot. So uh, there, there's a lot of there there. And it's not that people are taking jobs that are lower paying so they won't have to pay back their Well, no, 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 no. But uh, they're taking what's available to them. I think it'd be one degrees. thing to to do this student loan forgiveness and then also cancel the policy that creates it, which is to subsidize student loans in the first place. But we're leaving the policy intact. There'll be just as much student debt five years from now as there is now. And that's, I don't know how you feel about it, Bacha. I would love to get to a place where college is affordable. I don't think it should be free. I think it should be affordable the way it was 40 years ago for our, you know, our parents and our grandparents' generation. You could pay your way and you could afford uh, tuition. At some point, this went horribly wrong, I suspect, because the during government the subsidizing. There's a, there's a whole list of things that went wrong during the Reagan administration. Well, I think part of it is of that, that the government pays the cost federal of... responsibility um, and placed it on the borrower themselves and the borrower's families. And if you are someone and from a low-income background or a first-generation college student, it becomes a lot more difficult for you to walk into a college or university and be able to afford it, recognizing the outcomes are statistically supposed to be better jobs, better paying, um, longer term economic focus for you and your family. But what we have now is a system that was basically designed for the wealthy to be able to continue maintaining their wealth, for their kids to go to school. Meanwhile, everybody else is burdened with wild tax debt. Yeah, I guess my problem is not like I, th I hear the problem you're describing, Amisha, which I think is real, which is that people go to college expecting a certain standard of living as a result that would put them above the people who don't go to college. And that never materializes. And I have a much bigger problem with the fact that, you know, two thirds of Americans don't go to college, have no intention of going to college and have no way of achieving that standard of living in a way that in a previous generation they might have. So I, I totally agree with you. That is a real problem. But to me, there's a, a an even bigger problem. And it's so funny because there was a video circulating of AOC from a couple years ago. People were making fun of her because she had taken on this kind of like Southern preacher intonation. But what she was saying was the kind of thing that Democrats used to it used to be their message. She was saying there is nothing wrong with being a bartender. There is nothing wrong with being a person who, you know, drives a truck for a living, who cleans people's houses for a living. These are jobs that can be dignified if they are protected and if they have pay good wages. And I feel like that used to be the approach. And now the approach is let's get everybody into college. And if they can't afford it, let's find a way for the taxpayer to pay for it. And I'm just, you know, I, I, I agree with you. It is really sad when people take out loans thinking that they're going to be making, you know, 200, 250,000 
$100,000 a year and they end up making, you know, the upper limit is $125,000 a year for these loan forgivenesses, which is not a lot in New York City, let's let's be honest. Um, But I I have an even bigger problem with the fact that the median income is $55,000 a year and that those people who don't go to college have no hope of achieving that standard of living that used to be a middle class standard of living that was almost guaranteed for working class Americans. So there's two sides to it, I guess. Uh, we got to leave it there. Thank you both. We'll have more rising right after this. Elon Musk is planning to cut 75% of Twitter's workforce if and when he becomes owner of the company, according to a report released by The Washington Post on Thursday. This could cut the staff down from 7,500 to just over 2,000. Now, according to The Washington Post, even if Musk's Twitter deal falls through, big cuts are expected at the company because Twitter's current management plans to cut the company's payroll by $800 million by the end of next year, the Post says. Joining us now to weigh in, Democratic strategist Amisha Cross. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I probably have the view that many of our our viewers do uh, if we're cutting down on um, content moderators who are making questionable decisions or who are parroting a kind of mainstream media consensus and forcing it on the platform that would be great if we're cutting down people who are you know making sure the platform isn't taken over by bots and spam and like I don't know, whatever other harassment, et cetera, then it could quickly become a worse user experience for everyone. And uh, I, I, I don't know, what, what do you expect, Amisha? This is Elon Musk doing what Elon Musk does best. I think that what we're seeing here is um, him basically trying to create and promote his own cadre of soldiers. And he doesn't—he wasn't going to keep everybody on board that was already there anyway. He has his own people. He's going to bring those folks in. Um, Knowing that the size, the scope of what this social media giant does already, it's very interesting that he wants to cut by that much. Um, but again, I think that this is him trying to harness what mm-hmm. he feels this 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 could be. But in addition to that, I do believe that there's a certain part of him that is very upset at some of the social media moderation that has been going on at this point. Yeah. And he wants to give those people a, a voice to rise up. I don't know. What, clearly, January 6th didn't affect him in any way. And he's absolutely fine seeing these clowns basically do what they do best. Basha, I know you're a, a bit skeptical of some of Elon Musk's, um, or you're worried about uh, how, and I, I agree with you on this, how he could be leveraged by because of his interest in China, for instance, that you know he talks this game about free speech, but you know we've seen time and time again, uh, 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 company big companies bow to China when it, their bottom line is involved. Um, so, so what do you think about this? Yeah, I, I think that the mainstream media keeps missing the point with Elon Musk. You know, the the question of content moderation that is a real legitimate problem, question. There are good arguments on both sides. On the one hand, you don't want just hate speech all over the place. On the other hand, they're clearly overdoing it. And there's a sort of Democratic Party line going at Twitter to decide what gets to stay up and what doesn't. That seems like pretty clear. That's, you know, but that but that is a a really difficult problem that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, Elon Musk or whoever owns Twitter shouldn't have a you own it. That is a problem that you're going to get to decide where you you fall on that. The real problem with Elon Musk owning Twitter is that he was he is 100 percent in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party and he never says no to them. He, he built a showroom for Tesla in the Xinjiang region, which is where they are genociding the Uyghur Muslims. And 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 to be a billionaire, to have all the FU money in that the, any person could ever have the richest man in the world. And what you do with that privilege is you build a showroom in the shadow of a concentration 
concentration camp. What is that person going to do with a social media platform that has a huge impact on the American public discourse? I, I really think that that is the most important question when it comes to mm. Elon Musk and Twitter. And that's the one that never gets talked about. Mm. I, I also thought it was kind of funny the way you know, the media kind of described this as, you know, catastrophic. Elon Musk is going to is going to gut the company and then, you know, it's going to lead to more hate speech and such things online. Of course, everyone it's everyone was already threatening to quit Twitter right over Elon Musk. And then he wasn't going to buy it. And then Twitter sued him to force him to buy it. So it's a little there's this like really ridiculous cat and mouse game between Elon Musk and Twitter and the employees where they're all like getting upset about this. But it, it, they, they ultimately they wanted him to have to buy the company because it's in it's it's in some ways in bad shape. I mean, I've noticed I use Twitter so much less these days. I don't know you all. Brianna was saying the same thing. Uh, in, in the way that, uh, that, that social media is becoming less of a vehicle for news delivery, this is true of Facebook as well. I think it's true to some extent of YouTube, the, the platform we rely on on this show, uh, that my sense is that all the social media giants um, became have internalized the message that was screamed at them by people in the mainstream media and people of the government that you letting people talk and letting people learn and letting people read and letting people watch is corrupting our democracy because then they'll reach conclusions we don't want them to reach. So we're going to haul you before Congress and scream at you until you stop doing that. And so they've said, okay, don't hurt us. We're going to stop doing that. And I think that's uh, that's been a that's has been already and is going to continue to be a loss for the interesting conversations that sometimes chaotic, sometimes harmful, I guess. Yes, but interesting nonetheless, and, and sometimes arriving at a truth that the mainstream media has missed. That's been happening because of these platforms. And uh, I, I'm worried that regardless of what happens with like an Elon Musk type character, and maybe he's going to position himself against this direction, I think that would be useful. But, uh, but, but, but I don't know. I, I, I think we're, we might be exiting the phase where, uh, where Facebook and Twitter and some of these other platforms have as much um, control, serve as the kind of public news feed for, for news consuming uh, people. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? Depends on who's in office. Because at the end of the day, um, we know that uh, former President Trump used Twitter in a much different way than we've seen any other elected official utilize it. And I think that it helped to, in, in some ways, bolster interest. And it drove news and it drove media because out of the White House, this man was tweeting regularly. Right. But what we're seeing is that more people, you know, the, the social media is definitely segmented at this point in a way that it, that we see happen every few years. There's a new social media juggernaut that comes out that everybody jumps on. This is a new shiny thing. Right now, that thing is TikTok. Um, and as it relates to news, Twitter is still mainstay. Facebook kind of lost it a few years ago. Um, but more people get their news from Twitter than they do any other social media. So I don't think that that's going to go away anytime too soon. It's finding a way to harness that, finding a way to diminish some of the crazy talk. No matter, I mean, crazy talk has been happening on social media since before Facebook even existed or on the internet since before Facebook even existed. I don't think there's a way to eradicate it completely, but that, that moderation is extremely important. I think that to Bacha's point earlier, it is very it is very significant that the cozy relationship that Elon Musk has with China, because of the economic, um, because of the economic curtails for himself, that's something that we should investigate more. I think it's a lot easier for people to jump on the oh, let's just not have him take over Twitter bandwagon than it is to jump and dive into this more serious conversation. But I also feel like nobody was ever really going to leave Twitter in the same way after Trump got elected. Nobody was ever really going to move to Canada. People just say things <laughs> when they're upset. 
I read crazy talk in the Washington Post every day. Uh, you know, let's. Uh, I, they, we, we talk about how there's a lot of bad stuff on all these social media platforms, but there's bad stuff in our in our in our existing media institutions that just get things all wrong all the time. But don't uh, you know? But don't don't turn it into a reflection of this dark corner our society has entered. Uh, so it, it feels it feels unfair. I don't know. What do you think, Bacha? Um, I just hate being put in the position where I have to defend Elon Musk, like when he was coming up with some really good solutions to the Ukraine-Russia crisis, and you know the entire yes, let's do the Musk plan came for him. <laughs> exactly. Secretary of State Elon um, Musk, I'm 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 all for it. It was a perfectly <laughs> legitimate plan, and well, that's that'd be another segment. But anyway, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. The parent company of TikTok once planned to track the locations of specific U.S.-based users, according to new reporting from Forbes. The internal audit and risk control department of the Beijing-based ByteDance tech company, which owns TikTok, primarily deals with internal HR matters. However, according to materials obtained by Forbes, the department at one point planned to collect the location data of a U.S. citizen who had never had an employment relationship with ByteDance. Back in 2020, former President Trump announced plans to ban TikTok in the U.S. because of national security risks concerns associated with the China-based app. In September, TikTok and the Biden administration drafted an initial deal to resolve the concerns. However, the sides have yet to come to an agreement. Here's something very interesting about TikTok, Robbie. It's banned in China. Okay, that tells you everything you need to know about this app. Right. The Chinese banned it because they created an app that destroys civilizations and then they exported it to the United States and banned it for their own people. And President Trump understood this and was like, why are we going to allow this app that they have correctly understood is so dangerous into our country? Let's ban it. And then another one of those things, he actually didn't really follow through with it when he said he was going to. And then, of course, the Biden administration didn't. So, you know, I think that's extremely important context when we're talking about this app, don't you? Yeah. So so TikTok has issued a statement denying this report, although they didn't quite deny it. Um, They said, you know, they could only track kind of the rough location of someone, not like their specific location. Um, Also, all the social media apps do have the ability to track your location in some way. I guess the the difference is TikTok was uh, those apps have to ask you permission and then you tell them no. I guess TikTok wasn't doing that. There's a kind of dispute here. it's, it's interesting. Uh, so obviously, TikTok does present a much greater concern than the other social media apps because it's, you know, it, it's beholden to a tyrannical, hostile, authoritarian foreign government that, as you note, would not inflict this app on its own people. I tend to disagree. Um, I think that the main concern is kind of national security related or privacy related, because honestly, all of these apps have massive privacy issues that can't really be resolved and are not uh, like uh, like that, that. That genie is out of that that lamp. The Pandora is yeah. out of the box, whatever kind of metaphor you want to use. We're, we're just going to have large organizations able to compile a lot of information on you. And there's basically nothing that can be even strong. Even the strongest regulations imaginable would not really solve this problem at this point. My major concern with TikTok is actually in the sense is in the is in censorship and um, and, and narrative shaping because um, 
you know, we've been critical, uh, for instance, the, the U.S. government putting pressure on Facebook, for instance, on what you're allowed to say about COVID. That's been really bad. I think it's crossed the line into actually violating the First Amendment. You know, there are lawsuits going on now. There's been some reversals. Alex Berenson is back on Twitter, et cetera. But China can do that with TikTok to a much, much more vast degree. China can just straight up ban wholesale conversations of certain political topics on TikTok, which is now the most used social media site among anyone, especially among young people. So they could like they could just eliminate, for instance, all conversation about COVID or all criticism of China or all or they could make the, the dialogue about Ukraine, Russia far more pro-Russia by just like voiding out all the all the pro-Ukrainian side or, or the other way around. They have much vaster power to do that on TikTok than than any of the than Facebook or Twitter or whatever you want or YouTube. Those companies face some pressure from our government and they make some bad moderation decisions, but it's nowhere near what China TikTok can do. And that's actually my number one concern because the privacy stuff, for, I mean, the privacy stuff is concerning, but it's kind of like, that's just like what the, the, the state we've evolved to. Um, so that's what I'm really worried about and, and does perhaps speak to where, where I don't think, you know, breaking up or regulating out of existence the other tech companies is a good idea or even in keeping with the proper role of our government vis-a-vis -vis the First Amendment. You know, a hostile foreign government and their app. You know, it's, it's, it's essentially like a, a hostile foreign government owns a media company, a, like a, a media, a, a dominant media company in a U.S. market. And like, I guess, how would we have handled that during the Cold War, or during World War II or something, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it would have been probably not by just letting them run wild. But I am, but you know, I, that, that's my two cents about it. What do you think? So I don't have a TikTok account. Um, I watch TikTok videos like every respectable elder millennial in compilations on YouTube um, because I don't want to be tracked by the Chinese government. But um, my understanding is that it's a lot less political than Twitter, that it's mostly entertainment. Yes. Um, and so I think you're, of course, right. The censorship, it's a big problem. The national security is a big problem. But to me, the real threat of TikTok is the thing. That, see, the Chinese government would want to do both of those things in China, right? They would want to be able to track their own citizens. They would want to be able to um, censor conversations, right? The reason they banned it in China is because it turns children into obese zombies and i think that they have a mm. they have a comparable app in china but kids are only allowed to use it for 15 minutes a day and then it shuts down and you know obviously that's going too far but um that understanding that it you know it 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 it, it destroys your ability to concentrate because the videos are short it destroys your long you know so now youtube videos which are five minutes long feel you know interminable because you're used to watching videos that are between five seconds and 30 seconds long right i mean that does something to a billion people who are spending four, five, six hours a day on this app. And, you know, I, I think that that is the thing that they correctly identified, you know, as the major threat from this mm. app. And um, I, I think it's really bad. It's really dangerous. And not I, I don't mean that in like a, they're going to see things. They All of the content that I enjoy from from TikTok is it's very innocent. Like it's not political. It's people doing like kitchen hacks and th there's something about it that's extremely delightful and i think that that is the danger it's like it's very hard to stop mm. and you're seeing that impact that it's having on kids like if you try to have a conversation with a kid today it they, they they're incapable of a back and forth well, like who are these parents like who let their kids watch tiktok six hours a day i i mean 
Like if I, if I was a kid, <laughs> I would have played Nintendo 64 for six hours a day, but my mom wouldn't let me, so I didn't. Like, right, what, isn't right, this a right. parenting issue on some level? Like, yeah, I absolutely take the phones away. You know, lock them out of the bedroom at night. Don't don't let them take their phones into the bedroom at night. You know, keep them away from the kitchen table. Um, is this really beyond parents? I understand why it's a little bit harder to police this kind of thing, but it just doesn't seem to me beyond the realm of parenting. Because I didn't. You know, some kids use um, use TikTok. I, I think there are some actually advantages it has over Instagram, which is very, uh, Instagram is very, you know, appearance-based, and we have concerns about, you know, promoting social competition in a very um, uh, surface-level kind of, you know, especially for teen girls, maybe promoting unhealthy body image stuff, whereas TikTok is a little bit more, uh, seems more creative, more collaborative in a way, because you're, you know, you're, I don't even know what it's called, you're, you know, you're, you're, responding to someone else's uh, video. So I think there's, there is something healthy about it. Obviously, anything, if you're doing it for like six hours a day, that's like some intense screen-focused thing is going to be bad for you. So yeah, I would just say they should use it less. I don't know that it... I don't, I don't know that I would ban it on, on those grounds. In fact, I certainly wouldn't ban it on those grounds. But, uh, but that's why I see... Well, we, we, we reached a topic we have some healthy disagreement on today, so that's good. That's good. There was a lot of agreement in the earlier segments. I know our, our viewers will appreciate that we do disagree on uh, something. Right. You're, see, the criticism of me is like that I want a nanny state, but only one that's going to nanny in a way that I approve of. And you're like, no, the nanny state is bad no matter nanny what it's doing, bad. even if it's doing stuff I like. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, uh, I'll be back with Brianna Joy Gray to bring you all the day's biggest news. I'm also going to be doing, uh, this is a special event, Brianna and I are going to be doing a call-in show tonight at, I believe, 8 p.m. Uh, with uh, Liamy, who's also guest host of the show, to talk about House of the Dragon. Nothing news-related, but if that's your thing, you should tune into that. I have no idea how it's done. I've never used call-in before, so we'll probably post about it on Twitter if you want to figure that out and uh, tune in. But Bacha, it was such a pleasure to have you with us, and we'll see you again very soon. See you soon. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and check out Rising anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also on Roku, yay, very excited about that. I will see you back here tomorrow. Thanks for watching, everybody.